Um, and uh, just so you know, we, in the near future, it looks like we'll be having a uh, marriage conference or a marriage weekend. We haven't decided exactly what that'll be, but uh, um, we, we, God's made it clear to us that there are some needs, and we want to make sure that you're equipped. Um, we as a pastoral staff, and what God's always put on my heart is my jobs is to equip you, the saints, for the work of the ministry. And uh, if we have strong marriages and we're raising our kids up, you know, in the, in the knowledge of the Lord and according to what He says, you know, that's a strengthening that goes into every other area of our lives. And so um, be looking for that. That'll be coming up here probably um, in the next few months. So we're working out the details now. But um, in the meantime, what our announcements are saying here is that the men's retreat is... Uh, coming up, and in the announcements, there's a slight typo. It says that the um, fee for it, if you've signed up, which is going to be $175, the fee is due April 10th. It says the first. It's like a zero got left off. But even that's wrong. So um, after Curtis and I talked, what next Sunday is April 3rd. Can you believe that? It's going to be the first Sunday of April coming up. Um, but we're asking if you can make that your final time to sign up. You can sign up today. You can sign up next Sunday uh, if you haven't yet, but if you guys can try to get your uh, registration fee in, um, since we're partnering with Rocky Mountain Calvary Chapel, this is a regional conference where many Calvaries are coming. Um, We want to try to be faithful on our end to get our fees to them, and it's not just us that we're being accountable to or for, so we want to be faithful to get that to Rocky Mountain Calvary Chapel as soon as we can. So, April 3rd, next Sunday, and speak to Curtis, um, he'll be uh, collecting those, those uh, registration fees for the conference. Um, April 15th is Good Friday, we know that Easter is coming up here uh, quickly, rapidly upon us, and we're going to do a Good Friday worship service. Um, there will be a, a time of teaching by Pastor Jeff from U-Turn for Christ, and then after that our worship team is going to be leading us through I think around 45 minutes of, of just worship as we, as we get in that, uh, uh, prepare our hearts and minds for um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we celebrate and on, Easter, on Easter morning. And that, on our Easter services Sunday morning, well, you can see there we'll be doing a sunrise service at 7 a.m. outside in our amphitheater and then also an indoor service here at 9.30. And our indoor service at 9.30 will be offering uh, children's church, children's Sunday school classes for all ages. So um, Paul has a table set up outside. Tall, Paul Andrew, our uh, director of the uh, Bridge Youth Center. And uh, again, they're selling tickets for the Bridge Bash that's coming up. It's the one fundraiser that we do a year for the bridge. And we invite the community and uh, business sponsors and other churches to come alongside us and and support that ministry. That ministry is an outreach into our community, and um, and so we 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 are having that banquet and uh, it's a survivor themed um, uh, evening. There are going to be games. Um, they've told me some of the things that they're going to be doing. Um, you guys want to come and be a part of it. It's going to be real fun. So speak to Paul, uh, and they'll have some people outside again selling tickets for that banquet. And then mark your calendars, May 7th. 
Um, church is filling up on first and second services. Second service is um, more full than first service, and um, uh, we're running out of parking in, in the parking lot at times. And so what we're doing is we're going to be starting a Saturday evening service at 5.30. Um, and um, so that'll start May 7th. We'll have worship. We'll have children's ministry. Um, we'll have hospitality. Uh, it'll be uh, uh, with everybody's help and participation of the church, it'll be just another um, weekend service that we can begin to offer um, to those in our community also, invite them to come. And then lastly, um, the thing I want to highlight, uh, there's these flyers that were being handed out as you came in when you got a bulletin today. Uh, this is what I talked about last week on Palm Sunday. Um, we have... Uh, uh, gentleman, a missionary coming from Chosen People Ministries. He's a Messianic uh, Jew, and uh, Chosen People Ministries are an organization that is, um, seeks to bring the gospel message to the Jewish people. And um, one of the ways that they earn support and raise support is they come to Christian churches like ours and um, do teachings about Christ and, and um, from a Messianic Jewish point of view, I'm looking at the scriptures, and he's going to be taking us through that Sunday morning on Palm Sunday, the last week of the Messiah, the, 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 the time leading up from the triumphal entry into the resurrection of Jesus Christ, day-by-day account of, of, or to the death on the cross, excuse me, um, the, the, last, the last week of, of Christ here on earth and really get a, a, a look at that and preparing us for Easter um, that following Sunday. And then that evening, again, there's a sign-up sheet now. Space is limited. I'm sorry about that. I think we can do 96 people in here uh, in the sanctuary and do a full Passover Seder dinner. He's going to be leading us uh, in a, a message called The Messiah in the Passover. And um, uh, he'll introduce uh, uh, that to us, and um, we'll have a banquet together. And then after the banquet, after we participate in the actual Seder meal, the Passover meal, he'll take us through um, what that looks like from um, uh, a Messianic Jewish perspective as Christ is revealed through the Passover, that, that feast that was instituted um, by God and that the Jewish people still celebrate today and they still um, adhere to that today. Um, many Orthodox Jews do. So there's a sign-up sheet. Cost is $10 per person. Space is limited. I know that a bunch of people are already signing up for it and have, but it's on the information counter near the children's checkout check-in area, so, so sign up for that. All right, this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 6. Um, it's going to take us a little while to get through this chapter. Um, we know that Mark kind of gives us a cliff note version, if you will, of the life of Christ as he highlights many things, teaching us and showing us and revealing to us how Christ is the servant of God who came to seek and save the lost, to, to serve and not be served. And um, as we go through these different accounts that we read here in Mark chapter 6. I think it's beneficial for us to spend some time and, and, and really dig into them and connect them to the other Gospels and try to um, expound and, and open up our understanding to what we know about Christ and what we see going on here. Um, this morning, as we take time to pray for the other churches in our community, um, it just so happens that on our list is the Canyon Community Baptist Church today. 
Uh, we know that it was uh, not too long ago that, that they, uh, their pastor um, retired, and they have a new pastor there, Pastor Steve, and uh, we want to pray for him, and um, uh, we'll get started this morning as we uh, open the Word. So let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you for um, the opportunity to gather together again today, Lord. Thank you for giving us um, the means by which we can worship you through song and with instrument as we lift our voices to you this morning and give praise and thanks to you and, and, and sing of who you are and what you've done for us and what you've promised to us that still waits for us, Lord, and the life that we have in you and so many wonderful things, God, that we can set our mind on as we worship you and think of you. And I thank you for that. And Lord, we, we want to lift up our time to you now as we open your word and read it and study it. And Lord, you tell us that the Holy Spirit is our teacher and that your word is truth, and we believe these things, and we confess these things, Lord, this morning, and acknowledge them, and, and ask, Lord, and call upon you to teach us by your Spirit through your word today. Father, we want to um, know you more. We want to know your will for our lives. Lord, we want to be submitted to you, and this morning we're here for these things to take place. So, Lord, bless our time together. And, Father, as we take the opportunity, pray for the other churches in our community Today, Lord, we want to pray for Canyon Community Baptist Church and for Pastor Steve. And, and uh, we, we have brothers and sisters there in you, Lord, who love you and who are called according to your purpose. And Lord, we pray that, um, Lord, you'd be leading them and um, providing for them. And Lord, that um, we're just grateful, God, that, that we're, we're not the only ones here, that, that we have others, Lord, um, in this town, in this community, who love you, who we, who we can align with. And so, Lord, we pray a blessing over them today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, in Hebrews chapter 3, I want to start by, um, well, let me read the first six verses first. So Mark chapter 1, or chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. It tells us, um, it says, Then he went out from there, and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. So we know that Jesus had been in the gather, the he had crossed over with his disciples. We read this last week to the Sea of Galilee, to to the land of the Gadareans. Had the encounter with the demon possessed men there, and um, we know that after Jesus had cast out the demons and spent some time there, that he got back in the boat with his disciples, and they came over back to Capernaum, and people were there waiting for him again. And um, so here Mark picks up and tells us they left that spot and they went to Jesus' own country, to Jesus' hometown, and his disciples followed him, it says. And then verse 2, it says, And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hand? And of course, they're not speaking this in the, in the sense of praise and awe and, 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 and giving you know, glory and honor to the things that they saw Jesus here. They're, they're saying these things with skepticism and, and with unbelief. And we see that in verse 3 when they say this, is this not the carpenter's? The carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were, it says, offended by him. They were offended by him. 
But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now, it says in verse 5, this is interesting, I think, he could not do, it's not that he would not, it says that he could not do mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled. It's an interesting word when we consider God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, that He, it says, marveled because of their unbelief. Then He went out about the villages and the circuit teaching. Father, again, help us to understand through the power of Your Spirit today, Lord, what has been written here for us. We may apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in light of what we read here, I think it's appropriate for us as we look at the application in our own lives to take a a, 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 a moment to look at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. For in that passage of Scripture, there's a warning I think that we need to pay attention to this morning. Um, a, a warning, an encouragement, an admonishment. You can, you can look at it in all of that way. But it says here in verse 12, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. And I think that's what it still is, right? Today's today. So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that's what sin does. Sin hardens us. And we enter into sin, guys, at the root of all sin is unbelief. Think about that. At the root of all sin is unbelief. So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why? For we share in Christ. Together, we do. If indeed we hold on, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm till the end. Firm to the end. Now, one of the main themes of the Gospel of Mark in this next section is unbelief. And what we know leading up to this chapter is, is that we've been talking about faith taking the things, the truths that God has revealed to us as we've gone through the sections of Jesus teaching His disciples with the parables and then revealing those spiritual truths to them and then calling them to, to, to stand upon these truths in faith, to enact them as they live by these truths day by day. But it's by no coincidence that Mark now transitions into unbelief because there's, there's two sides of the coin, right? There's faith and there's unbelief. And in this next section of Mark's Gospel is, is the unbelief, what we read here, of some of the people who came in contact with Jesus, God's servant. That's the overall theme through this whole next, this next um, chapter that we're reading through. And the amazing thing to consider for us this morning is that all of these people who did not believe, they had every reason to put their trust in Jesus. Every good reason is what I'm saying. Every evidence, if you will, every good reason to put their trust in Jesus. However, what we read in this chapter is that all of them failed to do so. All of them failed to do so. Including his own disciples. We'll read about that in a couple of weeks as we make it through this chapter. So as we study through this next chapter, we need to keep, I think, this mind in this, this, this keep in mind this warning that is found and given to us in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, right? Take heed lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away 
from the living God. And I think if all of us were honest with ourselves this morning, we, we, would, be, we would confess, we would acknowledge that we have been in that spot at times where there's been an, an evil, an unbelieving heart in us that's caused us to, to fall away from the living God. That because of our unbelief, we've entered into sin. We've given into temptation. And, and this is a warning that applies to our life, and it tells us to make sure that, that this isn't going on inside of us. Listen, I find it interesting when we talk about unbelief and faith to consider some of the things that Charles Darwin said, of all people, right? Charles Darwin. In 1859, Charles Darwin published a book called On the Origin of Species. It's a very famous book, Right? Uh, a lot of the evolution theory comes from that. And in this book, he presented this theory. This theory that animals have evolved through variation and natural selection of the most fit to survive in particular environments. Then, Charles Darwin published a second book. Not many people know about this. It's not as popular, but it was in 1872. Darwin published a second book called The Descent of man. And in this book, he applied his theory that he made, that I just read to you, in his previous publication on the origin of species, and he, 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 he applied that theory directly to the question of human beings, right? So he looks at, he looks at all, of, all of the animals, which he believes we're just like them, right? We've evolved. And, 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 and to narrow down his argument, not just dogs, not just cats, not just fish, but human beings as well are a part of this evolutionary process. And we've evolved through variation and natural selection. And that's what this whole book is, The Descent of Man. And an attempt to substantiate to substantiate his theory to the idea of human beings having evolved from lower life forms, right? We, we started off, according to evolutionists, you know, as, as, a, as an amoeba or whatever that crawled out of the mud and, and so on and so forth. And over millions and billions of years, you know, you, know, you guys get it. You, you went to public school, you know. Um, But he addresses in, this, in, in his argument, in, in, in placing this theory forward, he addressed the issue of man's belief in God. Now think about that. He addresses the issue of man's belief in God, and he said this. He declares this. He says, the belief in God has often been advanced as not only the greatest, but the most complete of all distinctions between man and lower animals. Let me say that again. The belief in God has often been advanced as not only the greatest, but the most complete of all of the distinctions between man and all of the other lower animals. And this is what he says with that statement. He says, it is, however, impossible, as we have seen, as he has seen, to maintain that this belief is instinctive in man. On the other hand, a belief in all pervading spiritual agencies seems to be universal and apparently flows from a considerable advancement in man's reason, again, speaking to evolutionary theory, and, and from a still greater advancement in his faculties of imagination, curiosity and wonder in other words what darwin has concluded 
by making these statements is that man's belief in God is nothing more than an evolutionary advancement in our imagination. That separates us from all the other animals. What he's saying is, in other words, God is nothing more than a figment of man's imagination. And I hope, I hope you know, I don't put much weight in Darwin's theories on evolution or in what he has deducted in regards to man's belief in God. But I do think that what Darwin points out about a belief or our belief specifically in God being the most complete of all the distinctions between man and all other life forms, I find that to be a very intriguing thought. Because here's because this is this is this is why people that 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 attest to that what they're really saying like Darwin is they're unknowingly suggesting that think about it on the converse side of it right the the on the on the unbelief side of it they're unknowingly suggesting that lack of faith lack of faith or lack of belief on man's part puts him on the same level as all the other animals in creation And when it comes to the topic of unbelief, this is something that we should, we should be careful to think about considering that human beings, literally guys, think about it, human beings, we included, act like animals when we don't believe in and follow after God. The point is God takes unbelief seriously and so should we. Because unbelief, if you're taking notes this morning, unbelief produces three destructive things. Number one, unbelief blinds our eyes. Unbelief blinds our eyes to the obvious, and it makes us skeptical. Number two, unbelief unbelief will poison our hearts. And it results in a cynical and in a mocking heart. And number three, unbelief robs us of our joy, of the blessings, of the opportunities that God wants to give to us. And these three fruits, if you want to call them that, of unbelief, these three fruits are what is exampled to us in chapter 6. And, when, and we witness them whenever someone did not believe in Jesus. And this morning, if we find ourselves in unbelief, these three same things, these three fruits will also be evident in our own lives. Now, as we come back to the text here, we read in these first six verses, and unbelief is exampled by those who knew Jesus. That's what we're told. Specifically, as verse 1, look here, tells us, it was those who were from his own country. And it's no secret that Jesus was from Nazareth. And prior to this, he had been in the region of Galilee, Galilee right, ministering and doing miraculous things, and it was about 20 miles away from Nazareth. It's, it's still today about 20 miles away from Nazareth. But it's important to note that, that this was not the first documented time that um, Jesus had returned to his home country to minister to the people there after his ministry had began. And in, 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 in the Gospel of Luke, this is where we read about that first interaction there. And we're told that after Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, right? We know that Jesus was, he came to John the Baptist. He was revealed as John testified then, and bore witness to Jesus being the, the Son of God, the one sent by God to redeem man. 
And then after that, Jesus was baptized, and it says that the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness. What we read in the Gospel of Luke that we don't read in the Gospel of Mark uh, is that Jesus, after he came out of the wilderness, he went to Nazareth. He returned in power, in the power of the Holy Spirit. It says, after being glorified, and he returned to his hometown of Nazareth, and on the Sabbath, like he does here, it says that he went in the synagogue and he read from the book of the prophet Isaiah. You remember that possibly, that account, where Jesus opened up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he read that. That was in Nazareth. And in Luke chapter 4, I want to read it to you this morning in verses 20 through 30, it says this. It says, Then he closed the book, the scroll of Isaiah, and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him because this was Jesus. This is who they, he grew up there. They knew him. And they began to say to, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him, and they marveled at the gracious words which he spoke and proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also in your country. Then he said, surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly that many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah. And when heaven was shut up three years and six months, there was a great famine throughout the land. But to none of them Elijah was sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in that time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And, 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 and says, so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff, then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. And the reaction that Jesus received there is because these people were in a state of unbelief even then, and he addressed their unbelief by referring to Old Testament incidents that were, were in the nation's history where because of the nation's unbelief at that time when God ministered and when God poured out his, his blessing, it wasn't upon the Hebrew people, it was upon a Gentile is what we're reading here. And they were furious with him at that declaration. And he was saying this, basically what he was saying is, you too are going to miss out now on the blessings of God because of unbelief. And for the Hebrew people at this time, it's like, we're God's chosen people. How dare you say this? And these things took place that we read about here. It was almost exactly a year when you follow out the timelines and try to stamp date all these things. What we read here now in Mark is almost a year after. Jesus' first visit to Nazareth, the things that we're now reading about. And even though they did not try to kill Jesus this second time, right? It's obvious that in spite of all of the things that Jesus had done over this past year, right? A whole year of evidences to substantiate who he claimed to be, right? It's clear that in spite of all the things that Jesus had done over the past year, that these people in Nazareth, they had not been chained by what they had what they had heard or what they had seen. And this same evil and unbelieving heart was still in them. Sad. And the first evidence of their unbelief is given to us in verse 2. If you look there where it tells us that when Jesus went into the synagogue, 
And people who heard him were astonished. Similar word to what we read the first time. They marveled. They were astonished. And what that means when you look that word up in the original Greek, it's, 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 it translates to literally struck with amazement as they could not believe what they were hearing or refused to believe what they were hearing. So in spite of the mighty works performed by Jesus' hand, which they could not deny, which they had admitted to here, right, because of their unbelief, they were blinded. That's the key word, guys. Unbelief will blind you. And they were blinded to what had been made obviously known to them. And in their skepticism, they even questioned where where Jesus had come up with the things that he was teaching and questioned this wisdom that he had. And in light of this, it's important for us to remember that the last time Jesus was in Nazareth, I didn't read that intentionally, what he read from the book of Isaiah, right from the scroll. He read this in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19. It says that the Spirit of the Lord, this is what Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, he said, to preach the gospel to the poor. And of course, Jesus was applying this prophetic statement to himself before all the people in Nazareth. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to the captives and recover the sight of the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And this statement being a, a messianic um, a prophecy. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a truth that was prophetic to the Messiah. And the Hebrew people knew this. And Jesus was laying claim of this, the people of, to the people of Nazareth for himself in that moment. He's saying, the prophet had spoken this and now I'm here. It's me. And they're like, we know you. What are you talking about? We know your mom. We know your dad. We know your brothers. We know your sister. And this is exactly, but what Jesus had declared here, what he claimed to be true and the things that he would do is exactly what had happened over that last year, over this year period of time before he went back to Nazareth. And this news of Jesus, his claims to be the Son of God and all of the miracles that he had, he had done over this last year, they had become widely known across the land. And news spread throughout all of Israel. In fact, by this time, think about it, Jesus has raised dead people back to life. He's made the lame walk. He's made the deaf to hear. He's made the blind to see. And it's obvious that through Jesus, the power of God was at work. Let me say that again. It was obvious that through Jesus, the power of God was at work at this time. But unbelief had blinded their eyes. Unbelief had blinded their eyes to what the obvious was, and they would not believe that Jesus, the carpenter, Mary's boy, was the Son of God. And the fact of the matter is, as we look at this to our own lives today, people are still blinded today, are they not? People are still blinded today, even though it's obvious to them that God is real. And there are many obvious truths that people are blinded to that God reveals to them. But perhaps the single greatest blindness there is, in my opinion at, at least, to the obvious proof that God is real is how all of creation bears witness to a Creator. 
In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, the Apostle Paul addresses this very thing, and he says it like this. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, listen, who suppress the truth, who suppress what they know to be true in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifested to them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and his Godhead, so that they are, it says, so that they are without excuse. And we can look externally and think about people, but we also need to look at our own hearts this morning as we consider these things. Because when we enter into belief, it's not because we don't know, it's because we've intentionally turned away from the truth and we're blinded to the obvious. And what has happened is, is we now stand in this place where without, we're without excuse. And we live in a society in a world today that just loves to make excuses for ungodly behavior. Oh, it was my parents' fault. You know, I was... I didn't get the right education. All these different things. You know, we're, we live in this victim mentality society and we as believers cannot allow that to be true in us. There are many awesome things about creation when we come back to this that highlights the obvious truth that God who created all things and furthermore has set it all in order and maintains the order of it all. There's many things that testifies to the fact that He is real, that God is real. And we could easily spend the rest of our time here this morning talking about these many things. But one of the most convincing to me out of all of the creation that testifies to the fact that there is a Creator is the stars. Which according to Psalm 147, which tells us they have all been counted and named by God. And in our galaxy, just really quickly because I love this stuff, our galaxy, the Milky Way, right? Astronomers, whoever they are, and whatever scientific estimates they do this with, I don't know. But um, they estimate that there are more than 400 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy. And all of them are traveling at tremendous speeds as our galaxy literally spins within itself, swirls within itself, and and at the same time travels across the universe. Okay? Picture that. And currently we know that the Milky Way galaxy is moving through the universe at 1.3 million miles per hour. What does that mean? That means that this ball of dirt that we are on, that we call the Earth, is traveling... 1.6 million miles per day. Astronomers also say that there are at least another 200 billion more galaxies in addition to to the Milky Way. And each of these galaxies also contain at least 200 billion stars. And like our galaxy, these galaxies are spinning all around and they're also moving through the universe. It's like a cosmic highway. And when you add all the planets, this is not even the planets that orbit around these stars, when you add all these things together, these figures get even more astronomical. It's mind-boggling. And what astronomers now recognize is that all of these stars and all of these planets, which make up these 200 billion universes, is they're moving about through this universe with a precise order that they say cannot be explained. I'm like, is it not obvious? 
(laughs) They're blind, and yet these same experts, they have the nerve and the foolishness to say that there was this big bang, and it all sort of exploded into perfect order. How about you? But as a kid, I like burning things and blowing things up, and and I I probably still like that a little bit today. Um, I love Fourth of July and firecrackers, and and I've never seen an explosion set anything in order, ever. Well, yeah. Well, I, I, I well I propose that 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 the that, that um people spout. Scientists and, and, and people who are unbelief, they spout these, these kinds of foolish conclusions simply because of this. They refuse to acknowledge that God is real, right? They refuse to acknowledge that God is real. And in Psalm 14, verse 1 is right when it says, the fool in his heart has said that there's no God. Guys, may that not be true about us. And the bottom line is that unbelief will blind your eyes. That's the point that we see here over and over again is unbelief will bind our eyes to the obvious truth just like it did for the citizens of, of Nazareth. But unbelief, hear this this morning, unbelief will also poison our hearts and it'll make us cynical. Unbelief will poison our hearts and make us cynical. And look at verse 3. It says, Is this not, they say, in their cynicism, is this not the carpenter's son Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. And in this text, in this next verse, we see that when a person, and and, and think about this in just the, the general sense, when a person will not believe, their hearts will become poison towards the family of God. I mean, Jesus even has said this. Those who will not believe, they hate me, is what Jesus said. And because they hated me, they're going to hate you too. And so, so when, a, when, a, when a person will not believe, their hearts become poisoned towards the family of God, and they will say and do evil things and attempt to belittle. Here's the reason why. It really has nothing to do with us, but it's that we are truth bearers, right? We're light bearers, and so they want to belittle and dismiss the truth. And sadly, this is exactly what the people of Nazareth did who are mentioned here. Remember, Jesus had grown up in Nazareth. And these people who, who were reading about here, they knew him. I've said that before, but they knew him. And, and I love the fact that they knew him and that the only thing that they could do to attack Jesus up to this point was to mention his family. In all of the 30 years that Jesus had spent in Nazareth, growing up among them and living with them, there was not one thing that he did or one thing he said that they could recall and somehow bring a condemnation against him for it. That says a lot. But because of their unbelief, they mocked. And they drew attention in their unbelief, in their mockery, to his family's trade of carpentry. He's a carpenter. To make the case that Jesus, ultimately they're saying, you're not a scholar, you're not a rabbi, you're not a learned man. He had no formal theological training. He had never been to seminary. You know, all these things. He wasn't a formal disciple of any rabbi. Furthermore, they also pointed out that they knew his brothers and his sisters in an attempt to bring Jesus down to their level. You're just like us. And he is not like them in any way. But they also did the unspeakable and they mentioned Jesus' mom, right? Don't talk about my mom, you know? Schoolyard stuff. 
can say anything, but no, you said something about my mom. And, and we can look at it like that, but it was much more than that in light of what we're reading here and what we're seeing. They did the unspeakable, and they mentioned Jesus' mom and said, isn't he the son of Mary? And this was a derogatory thing to say since a man was never, in the Jewish culture, a man was never described as his mother's son. Even if she was a widow. Unless it was with an insult, by insult. And because this is what they were really, what they're really saying. What, what they're saying is, we heard about your mom Mary and how she was pregnant before she got married. And so we know you're her son, but we don't know who your father is. And you see, the unbeliever will always attack the family of God because we who make up the family of God in our imperfections are an easy target, are we not? I mean, it's undeniable. It's the truth. In our imperfections, we're an easy target. And the truth is, Jesus who is our brother, Jesus who is our friend, Jesus who is our Lord, is perfect, and we are far from that. And so when unbelief fills a person heart, person's heart, they become cynical, and they mock, and they ridicule God by pointing out the faults and failures of those of us who do believe in Jesus in order to avoid dealing with the person of Jesus, with the things that Jesus taught, and who Jesus claimed to be. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to, to seek to live holy lives. In reality, like the people of Nazareth who were offended at Jesus, so too are those who have unbelief in their hearts equally offended by us when we profess who Jesus is and profess the things that Jesus taught and say, this is the truth. He is the only way. And the bottom line is that the things that Jesus taught and the things that Jesus claimed to be are an offense to many because they're a stumbling block ultimately to their flesh and also for us when we enter into unbelief too. It's a stumbling block for our flesh. We can be offended. And this is because none of us likes to be told what to do, do we? Be honest. We don't like to be told what to do, and Jesus calls all of us who believe in him to go where he goes and sends us to do what he tells us to do. He's the Lord. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And so when unbelief fills our heart, it becomes cynical. The heart becomes cynical, and the heart mocks because it does not want to submit to who Jesus is and what Jesus says. Now, the, the New Testament word, hear this, because this is where some dots begin to get connected for us. The New Testament word for unbelief is expressed by two different Greek words, apostia and apathia. And the word apathia means this. Apathia is a habitual disobedience and rebellion. And this disobedience springs up ultimately from apostia, which means a lack of faith and trust. What do I mean? In other words, apostia is a state of mind and apathia is the expression of it. And in Hebrews chapter 3 verses in Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4 it gives us a perfect example of what we're talking about here when it tells us that Israel did not enter into God's rest right when they were called to go into the promised land for two reasons. In in chapter 3 verse 9 it says because they lacked apostia which is faith. And in then chapter 4 verse 6 it says so they disobeyed. They apathia. Because they lacked faith, they disobeyed. Because they lacked apostia, they apathia. And so unbelief blinds your eyes. Unbelief blinds our eyes and poisons our hearts. And in the end, unbelief will, 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 will rob us, guys, of the joy and the opportunity that God has for us. 
and keep the children of Israel and going into the promised land in mind when we think about this. And so in verses 4 and 6, four through 6, the last part of this section, it says, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. And now he, the result of this here, this whole thing, he could, not do, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. As far as I can tell, there are only two times, maybe I'm wrong, but I tried to search it out. As far as I can tell, there are only two times in all of the Scriptures in the entire Gospel record where we are told that Jesus marveled. And when God in the flesh marvels at something, we should probably take note. Here in verse 6 is the first time where it says that Jesus marveled over their unbelief. The other time is in the Gospel of Luke, we're told, in chapter 7, verse 9. And it was also in regards to the issue of faith where it tells us that Jesus marveled not at the unbelief, but at the belief, at the faith of a Roman centurion, a Gentile, saying that he had not witnessed such great faith in all of Israel. Remember, the centurion came to Jesus and said, I'm a man in charge of many, and I know that if you just say the word, my servant would be healed. You don't even have to come. And Jesus marveled at this man's faith. He said, I had not seen such great faith in all of Israel. And because the centurion had faith in Jesus, here's the deal. Think about this as we look at this last section. Because the centurion had faith, what happened? He saw the power of God. He witnessed the power of God. He experienced the blessing of God. As Jesus responded to the centurion's request and ultimately healed the service, his servant. But on the contrary, it was read about the marveling that takes place here. In this section, Jesus, according to verse 5, says that he could do no mighty works in Nazareth. And in light of this, it appears that the unbelief of these people, um, it, 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 it stood as an obstacle. I like to look at it that way. It stood as an obstacle and prevented them. Not an obstacle for, for God because it's an obstacle for them and it prevented them. What, what their unbelief did is it prevented them from receiving the miraculous things that Jesus wanted to do for them. That's what we're reading here. And so because they would not humble themselves and because they would not believe in Him who, in, in who Jesus was, and despite all the evidence, they would believe in what Jesus said they did not get to witness the power of God. But if they had believed, they would have been blessed. If they had believed, they would have received great joy. As we've seen that over and over and over again up to this point with those who have put their faith in Jesus. And the reason why unbelief robs us of joy, think about it like that. The reason why, why unbelief robs us of the joy that God has for us is because our unbelief keeps us away from God and away from the good things that God has waiting for us. Primarily, unbelief prevents a person from receiving, ultimately, foundationally, right? Unbelief in God, unbelief in Jesus, at the basis of it all, prevents a person from receiving God's forgiveness of their sins. And his free gift of salvation. But on a day-to-day basis, as we look at our own lives, as it was with Israel who did not enter into the promised land, 
to the place of God's rest because of their unbelief. On the day-to-day basis, this same unbelief can creep into our own hearts and keep us from the promises that, and blessings that God has for us and, and keep us from finding rest, both of which gives us joy in this life. Remember, unbelief in Jesus is the state of mind that leads to disobedience. Apostia and apathia. Let me say that again. Unbelief in Jesus is the state of mind that leads to disobedience. Unbelief in Jesus is the state of mind that leads to disobedience. And so belief or faith is the state of mind that leads us to what? Obedience. And with this in mind, we can see how faith in Jesus fills us with joy in light of what Jesus said or declared in John chapter 15, verses 9 through 11. He said this, As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and your joy may be full. So if we do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God and put our faith in Him, We will not do what he says, and our joy will not be full. But in light of all of these things we need to ask, I think we need to ask as we wrap this up, what's the antidote for unbelief, right? We can talk about it, we can analyze it, but it's like, what is the antidote for this unbelief and this evil heart that we all have? Close. (laughs) What is the antidote? Which results? Okay? What is the antidote? And, and as by I see it here in the text, as it relates to what we're talking about, there's really a three-part answer to this. And I want us to disclose with this morning. So if you're taking notes, the first, firstly, the antidote for unbelief, which results in blindness, right? Which results in blinded eyes, spiritual blindness, is to offer prayers to God. If we're in a state where we have doubt or unbelief, We need to offer prayers for God. And here's the hope. It doesn't have to be a prayer that we offer up for ourselves because often in the state of unbelief, we're not in the mind of praying anyway. But there's power in prayer, right? Our prayers can go forth and be intercession into the lives of people who we know who are in a state of unbelief that God God would open up their eyes to see the truth. In Ephesians chapter 1, we see that the Apostle Paul did this when he prayed for even the believers in Ephesus and asked in verse 18 that the eyes of the hearts of their hearts of the Ephesian people might be enlightened, that their eyes might be enlightened. He prayed again that the eyes of their heart, right, might be enlightened so that their eyes might be enlightened to see. And you see, faith is is not blind. (laughs) Let me say that again. Faith is not blind because faith sees what unbelief will never see. Faith sees what unbelief will never see. And prayer is a key, is the key that helps us move from unbelief to belief and opens up our eyes to see the things of God. There's this really cool story in 2 Kings chapter 6. It tells of the time when the Syrian army had surrounded, um, or excuse me, the Syrian army was fighting against the Hebrew people. But every time the king of Syria would plan an attack, God would intercede and tell the prophet Elijah about the Syrian king's plan. And he would go and tell the king of Israel, and he'd be able to preempt the Syrian king's plan. Three times this happened, and as a result, the 
king of Syria thought, there's a spy in the midst of my camp. But one of his advisors who knew, the Hebrew people knew Elijah said, there's no spy. And he told him that the king about the prophet of God, about Elisha. And so the king of Syria sent an army to, were called to the city of Dothan, where Elisha lived, and, and he surrounded it. He was going to take this guy out, this prophet of God. Well, the next morning, we're told that Elisha's servant, Gehazi, woke up, and he looked out, and he saw how the city of Dothan was surrounded by the Syrian army, and he was filled with fear, believing that they were going to be killed. Maybe you know the story. What, what, what we're told is that Elisha spoke to Gehazi, and he said to him, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And he prayed to God saying, Lord, he prayed to God saying, Lord, open up his eyes so that he might see. And the Lord opened up the servant's eyes to see into the spiritual realm. And when he looked out again, what he saw on the mountainside was the city outside of the city was, was, was on the mountain that was full of horses and chariots of fire from the Lord's army. And in the end, God blinded, I think ironically, the whole Syrian army, caused them to be blind. And Elisha walks on out and takes them and leads them into Israel's capital city and, and where they had to surrender. And the point is, is that Elijah wasn't worried because his faith, Elijah's faith, allowed him to see what unbelief would never allow. The second antidote for unbelief, which results in a bitter heart, right? Unbelief results in a bitter heart, a heart that mocks. The second antidote for unbelief, which results in a bitter heart, is to look at people in the same way that God sees them. The antidote for unbelief that results in a bitter heart is for us to look at people in the same way that God looks at them. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 15, verse 6, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 said this, I know no man after the flesh. What does that mean? In other words, what he's saying is, he says, I see people in Jesus. Washed in His blood. Robed in His righteousness. And, and this is the way that we need to choose to see people because when we see God, when we see people in God, as God sees them, then what that allows for us is to be able to love them like God loves them, to be able to give them grace like God gives them grace, to give them forgiveness like God gives forgiveness in spite of those persons, that person's faults and failure, knowing that they are in need of Jesus just in the same ways that we are in need of Jesus. And lastly, guys, for unbelief, what robs us of our joy, we must know the promises of God and we must speak the promises of God. If the worship team wants to come up, we're going to end with this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Listen. It says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is, believing that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Listen, there are many ways to please God. You can, you can study the Scriptures and find these things, but there is no way to please God apart from faith. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, it says this. It says, but what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is, what is it? The word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believed in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And ultimately, faith is worked into our lives. Faith is worked into our lives by God's Word. 
In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Therefore, what does that mean for us in regards to faith and unbelief? Is that we should be students of God's word who speak God's word and, and by faith living according to God's word. A solid faith. A real faith. A balanced faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And as we study God's Word, what takes place is our focus will shift off of ourselves and off of our circumstances and onto Jesus who is faithful in every situation at all times. I don't know what struggle you might have today. I don't know what difficulties you are or might be facing today. But I can tell you this, I know that the answers to the questions that we have in these times and that the help that, that we're looking for in our time of need are found when we put our faith in Jesus. And Father, I pray that we would see our need for that again today, Lord, that there would not be an evil heart of unbelief in us. Lord, because when we walk in unbelief, Lord, we walk in rebellion of you, to you. And sin enters in. And all of these things, Lord, that we read about here take hold of us. Lord, I pray that you would give us more faith. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see. I pray, God, that you would help us to see others the way that you see them. That we would even look at ourselves, Lord, at the way that you see us. And Lord, ultimately, that we would trust in you again wholeheartedly, every aspect of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.